So tonight's lecture is Women at the Bar in 2020, A Sticky Floor and Gas Ceiling. But the reason I broadened the debate was frankly because by the time I had started to look at what the law was like in terms of we as barristers, as solicitors or the judiciary, it seemed to me blindingly obvious that we shouldn't just be talking about gender, we should be talking about why we are not seeing enough non-white faces, why sexuality is still largely hidden, and why we're not seeing any disabled people being the barriers for what needs to be changed in society. Because the premise of why this question is important is that I believe that those who make decisions or those who influence decisions should broadly represent the society that is going to be impacted by the decisions that are being made. And that's because if the rule of law is going to have any relevance to members of society, then I think we should have confidence in those that are making those decisions. And I personally find it quite difficult to have decisions made in my name, affecting myself or my children or potentially my grandchildren, if all when I see, when I look on screen, is a ceaseless walk of white, male, privileged, straight, able-bodied men. That's just not right. So this lecture, although initially it was intended to look to see whether we as women come 2019 have achieved the equality that we thought would be ours, I'm sure, 100 years ago, it's broadened. So first of all, there is going to be a little history tip for any of you who looked at my lecture um, some two years ago, which was very much a call to arms. Um, and... It was this image, actually, that properly reflects what was going on in 2017, because I started that lecture intending to be the person that said how well we were doing. And it was only after investing hundreds of hours into discovering how poorly that we were doing that the whole tone of the lecture changed. So, just a reminder on what the figures are. At the time, you clever bods passed your bar finals and you think about becoming a barrister, there is 50-50, or in fact 51-49, in terms of gender distribution of women to men. So let's just knock out the argument that just because you've got ovaries, you don't have the brains to be a barrister. Because if that were the case, you wouldn't have equal qualifications coming into the profession. At five years' call, the dip has started. So 45%. What had happened in those intervening five years? And I'll come back to that in a moment. But the most alarming dive was five plus call, particularly at the 10 years plus, it had dropped down to 29%. So where have we hemorrhaged that talent? Was it just elective departure or were people effectively being forced out? And then silk. Because if you lose that proportion of able, bright women from the profession, you deplete the pool from which the silks are chosen. And logically that means, because the silks are the major pool from which the senior judiciary are taken, you are automatically therefore reducing the number of women who are likely to have the skill base, because their careers advance, to think about becoming, for example, high court judges. And that is why there is a disjunct in the judiciary between the number of women you see at high court level, 20%, from, for example, the number of women that you see at lower-ranking posts, such as tribunal chairs, DJs, and DDJs. And that's because more accessible 
promotion to being a judge occurs at those levels. And there's a broader reach, which means more solicitors, for example, more non-lawyers go into those type of rankings of, of the judiciary rather than the more elective, exclusive uh, route, which leads you to the High Court from whence you then, if uh, you seek to do so, are likely to want to pursue a career to the Court of Appeal up to um, the Supreme Court. So, just to labour the point, because when you're on the message, it needs to be rammed in, because otherwise you're not going to take this lecture seriously, that is what happens. Okay? Women, red, men, that sort of sludgy type colour. Uh, and before you go any further, you can see how the numbers start to move very dramatically until you get to 25 plus years cool and you've got that percentage. Um, gender at the bar. You can see here, again, it's a question of what's accessible to uh, women or more particularly non-white straight men. They're packing up their bags and going. And why was that? Well, it's because there is, from the point that you seek to become a barrister, a ticking time bomb occurring in your womb that means that people make judgments about what you can and you can't do. It is a matter of fact that there is more likely to be harassment and abuse of you if you are female than if you're male, or certainly you're more likely to say you have been um, approached or bullied if you're a female than a man. We have underreporting, I think, of the number of attempts to bully or to sexually harass gay guys, either because they're gay or because the people that are sorting them or seeking to approach them are gay, because that's still very difficult to talk about. But the culture of the bar is one that, when it works, is absolutely superb, because it gives you one-to-one -one training with someone that knows the ropes. You become their eyes and ears both in court and with the clients and also with reading the papers. And that is an incredibly empowering experience. But it can also be a really abusive one if the power dynamics are wrong because it's going to be that supervisor who's able to give you a reference that may or may not lead you to having a tenancy in that chambers or a tenancy in another chambers. And because those who are pupil supervisors tend to be more senior, and that would be the logical stance, would it not, than those who are seeking to be um, pupils, that means that they have age and status on their side as well. The other factor that would impact upon you potentially in terms of whether you think the bar is for you is the working hours and the culture. We are all self-employed. We don't have work protection for issues such as sickness, which means we don't take time off because if we don't work, we don't earn. We don't have pension provisions. So again, you don't work, you've got nothing to put there for a rainy day. If we don't work, we're not seen to work and therefore the, the number of briefs dwindles. So we need to be out there if we have got a court-based practice. And that means you don't turn work down, even if you are driving yourself into the ground to try to keep things going. Now, I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who is a legal aid lawyer and very proud to be so. So when I'm talking about work practices, I cannot seek to talk to you about what it might be like to work in the more disciplined, refined scenarios of shipping or trust, for example, where your only engagement with people might be with the person that brings you a cup of tea. That's not my working world. 
So when I'm talking to you about work practices, which means that I and my colleagues are attached to one, in my case two, I look like I'm a drug dealer, I always have at least two phones, my iPad and my laptop with me, um, I'm not the only one that believes you have to be connected all the time in order to make sure you deliver the service to the clients that they need, because my clients and my cases run on a level of anticipated crisis, because that's why they are clients in the care system. But that means that you are accessible all the time. Your papers come to you, not in a nice pretty bundle tied up with a red ribbon. Here, madam, here, sir, can I bring them to you? They come almost like a postal script through the email. Receiving 5,000 pages by email is not unusual in a PDF, unpaginated, with no idea about what the contents are. Mixed in with correspondence that you really don't want to know what happened five years ago when it came to a contact dispute to the one document that indicates your client might have made an omission to assaulting a child. That's not really helpful. But we cannot, as barristers, delegate the task of preparation to everyone else because one, it's our job to marshal the material and two, it's what we do when we are a court. So that work stress has an impact on the type of pressure you can cope with. The other areas will be when you start to think about having a family. We are still in a world where it tends to be that child rearing is done by the female of our type. It is unusual that a man takes up the primary caring responsibility, particularly if they have to give up a job which they have striven to create, both through a university, then through supplemental training, and then through industry training. It's highly unlikely, generally, that if there is a balance between those earning capacities, that it's going to be the man who gives up that full-time career rather than the woman. And there are lots of reasons for that, which is not uh, in my gift to go through tonight. We struggle through the bar when we have children, the first child at least. It's when you have the second in particular that things become really tight, because at that point you really are operating on energy level zero and managing two children who never seem to be unwell at the same time, or when the same person is around to pick up the pieces, means that you are already operating on low petrol and energy levels. And if you're away from the bar, it's hard to think about coming back because we forget what level of stress we gradually absorb within our DNA that we don't realise is bearing us down until we take a break from it. And then you realise what a bizarre profession we are in. So that is just some of the reasons why when women go, it is because the combination of lots of different factors ends up being something where they think, what can I do with my university degree? What can I do? Actually, I can do a lot of things. I can become an employed barrister. I can become someone who works in the city. I can, do, I can be someone that sets up my own self-employed business. And all of those things are possible because of the transferable skills you have as a barrister. And you can do it in a way which doesn't come with that adrenaline-packed, stress-filled work, which is the thing that drives us through day by day, which means we complain less than we ought to. So that is why there is a, there is a flood, an exit, of women in particular from the bar. What does that tell us about what type of candidates we are attracting because we need to think about what message we are sending out in terms of social mobility. If we are already under a disadvantage in terms of a shortened career because we are female, why should we 
think about entering it if, in addition to the burden of our ovaries, we also carry, for example, the burden of going to a comprehensive school. As anyone knows who's followed these lectures, I went to a comprehensive school. I only came to the bar, as anyone who's listened to the lectures would know, I think through a combination of ignorance and arrogance. How, however, can it be right that when I am going in my role as speakers of schools to academies or to other um, schools who don't have that range of professionals, oh, daddy's a banker here, come and have a little chat. How can I go to academies and say to them, join the bar, if I can't say to them that it's a place that will welcome them into its ranks, as it should? And I think we should and we do welcome those who don't come from elite um, uh, backgrounds into the bar, but it is undoubtedly harder to make your place than if you do come from a background where you have contacts in the profession. So unless we, which is the point I'm coming back to later in the talk, unless we who are here reach out and positively encourage, make links and support you, then you are at a disadvantage because you don't have that ready state of communications and confidence to call upon. So just look at, this, at the impact of that. If we are looking about what the bar attracts in terms of its applicants, although there wasn't a high take-up of responses, 33% uh, attended an independent school in the UK. And you can see there, that's a stark contrast to the number that we will be looking at if we were looking at the UK school population overall. So 7% versus 33 What about ethnicity? So, non-white backgrounds. I'm really never comfortable with the acronym BAME, but no, no one else has come up with an alternative, so I'm going to use it for the moment. So we have proportion of pupils, 16.3%. By the time they come barristers, 13%. By the time they seek to come QC, 7.8%. Now, if you look at the trends, that's 2018 figures published in 2019, and you go back to 17 and 16, that's remained pretty stagnant. So why is that? And that means there's got to be a massive reality check by those of us at the bar and in the judiciary because it is not acceptable to stand still when society changes around us. And that is a real driver for change, if nothing else is. What about gender and sexual orientation? Now, that was interesting because it was the least filled in sector on the bar form. I don't think it's a surprise as to why it would be. But of those who entered the data, we have 7.9% of pupils, 6.6% of non-silks, 4.3% of silks who were prepared to provide their sexual orientation. Now, interestingly, that is far higher than the general population. But what it doesn't say is whether or not those figures illustrate those who are not straight and are prepared to say so anonymously versus those who are not straight and are prepared to be out at the bar. What about disability? We clearly have an underrepresentation of disabled practitioners at the bar. 2.8% had declared a disability as of December 2018. When we look at the comparison of that with the population, that's 12.4%. So why is it in a profession that, depending on the nature of your disability, might mean, for example, you may not be mobile, so you might not be able to go up and down on steps to courtrooms with lifts that are forever broken because the HMCT never fixes them. But why would that mean, for example, you can't have a practice 
in wills or trusts or a paper practice? Why would that mean you can't do remote communication or you can't do finance work, for example, where there are far more um, video link type hearings? So what does it mean that we are excluding people by virtue of a disability when in fact there are very many ways at the bar in which you could operate um, faultlessly and superbly and exceed those of your uh, non-disabled colleagues? I put that picture of the Paralympians up because whereas in one area we are prepared to celebrate and to respect difference, which I think sometimes is a better way of describing disability and ability, at the bar, I have found it very hard to find champions who are clearly operating within our system under a disability and therefore able to be role models, save one group, which I will come to towards the end of the lecture. So if that's the bar, what does that mean in terms of the judiciary? Because for me, it's not a question of looking at the numbers. It's about looking at their distribution. Because when I use that phrase at the beginning for the title, which is sticky floors and glass ceilings, it's important to understand why it might be that those who are non-white, male and straight are more likely to be clustering at the bottom levels of the judiciary rather than rising the top. So if we look at that in terms of gender, 46% of tribunal judges were female compared to 29% of court judges. We look at that in terms of being non-white. We've got 11% of tribunal judges uh, were BAME, 7% of court judges uh, were BAME. So you can see the disjunct there. And then, as I've said, look at the distribution of those who form their groups. So that's the question. And it really needs to be tackled. There are, I think, a number of reasons why that comes about. Practice bias, status, income and parenthood. I've talked about parenthood so far. But what about practice bias? It is anecdotal, but an anecdotal truth, that those who come to the bar from a non-privileged background, or who are female, or who are non-white, tend to seek out or be suggested to have practices in the legal aid sector. Now, for me, it was an elective choice. I wanted to come to the bar to make a difference to the society that I was part of, and I strongly believe that my duty, having acquired an education that was not mine by right, imperiled me. Not imperiled, that's putting the wrong thing. Empowered me, much better. Empowered me to do good by virtue of the advantages that I was given that I had not expected. And so I was always going to be a legal aid lawyer. I was certainly not going to be a child abuse barrister, but that's another story. But I was intending always to be that couterie of barristers that fought for those who were vulnerable, that represented those that didn't have a right to representation through income or through contacts. So that was my elective choice. But how often is that the choice of um, others who don't make that decision at the bar to come forward? Helena Kennedy, back in 2005 when she wrote Who Framed Eve, talked about the pressure placed upon young women in particular to do sex work because it was better for the client, it was thought to have a woman doing that work and acting as a defence uh, barrister to a rapist than it was for the jury to see a man defending a man. And that is why at the Old Bailey, although you might think it's a prestigious place to be, as indeed it is, there is a large proportion of young women and senior women 
who do sex cases instead of the heavyweight fraud trials, instead of the heavyweight cases where their skills might otherwise seek them to, to perform. So practice bias, if it drives you, for example, against your will or against your income ability to sustain that drop in income, if it drives you to do legal aid work, then your ability to earn will have been decreased because of the cuts that the legal aid system has had to endure over the course of the last decade. And therefore, logically, that will have a disproportionate impact on women as opposed to the general population at the bar. And if, in that context, you are finding it difficult to make ends meet, particularly if you're also a carer, whether of a child or a relative or a parent or an other, then you are going to find it harder to remain at the bar, the profession you've striven to attain a place at. Status. How widely respected are women? How widely respected are those who aren't straight? Where are the attrition factors in terms of the level of abuse or disparagement or dismissal that a woman may experience in court, for example, or in chambers compared to her white colleague? And for how long can you tolerate that before you decide to pack your bags and go because you know you're going to be respected elsewhere? So when we're talking about attrition factors, we are talking about such matters as harassment and bullying, parenthood, pay and culture. We are talking about comments such as this. And in case anyone thinks I'm harking back to a lecture I gave a couple of years ago about sexual harassment in the bar, this is from Chris Henley. And it's from February 2009. Just look at those comments. These are just a couple that I've picked out from his address. You really should think about whether the bar is right for you male judge to a woman who raised perfectly legitimately, in my view, an issue of her own personal arrangements. Status, the second comment, I'm so sick of our time being treated as totally worthless. To be in ex-Crown Court for a confiscation hearing in a list with others at 10.30, message from the judge, he wants two hours reading time, so we sit at 12.30, then shifts it to two o'clock without any apology, without thinking, that we are not simply buses in the queue as advocates. If we are acting in the legal aid system, we will have to pack cases in in order to make sure that at the end of the day, one of them might have stood up and you try to cut and paste between them to make sure you get the work in. So shifting a case to two o'clock and it was listed at 10.30 means not only are you compromised in earning the money you might have had in the afternoon, but so is your client. So what do you do? We're on the safe side and reject anything except for the first and it doesn't go through on the list and you end up walking back home with a bare parents' fee. So that type of attitude has a really demoralising effect on those who appear in front of such judges. Now this takes me back to what I was just saying about ambitious female practitioners often being guided towards sex offence work. And this is still from Chris's talk from February 19. And these are the figures that I think drive it home. Because if you've got a man in his position who is prepared to name and identify the type of attritional factors which he thinks are a problem for his industry, then not only is he one of the people we should celebrate for being one of the people who are prepared to support women, but also what he has, has credibility because it doesn't come from sour grapes. And too often, that's what happens when women complain about what's going on, which is just man up, is the response. Which in itself tells you a lot, doesn't it? So he has recently been in an 11-handed fraud trial in Birmingham of the 18 counsel, only one woman. 
a nine-handed fraud trial, Southwark, 15 council, one woman, three-handed murder, eight council, no women, five-handed frauds at Southwark, 12 council, no women. But it's really not acceptable, is it? Why is that happening? As he said, a lot of text here, and I'm not going to read it out to you, but the subtext is in red, which is this is a crisis. And those in our industry have a choice, which is either to act to make change and to intervene to make change, or to stand by where our profession, of which I am particularly proud, continues to decline in terms of its failure to harness the pool of talent that is there and at its disposal. So, why is it if, for example, as a woman, you survive to the stage of securing silk, and yet even in that small pool, from a small pool, from a small pool, you're unable to swim? Have you not, by the time you have reached silk, got to that stage where you are expecting to see women in court, in the Supreme Court in particular, in equal numbers? Well, you may well very think so. So why is it then that when we look at the statistics, and I particularly thank um, Mikolodge here, because he has generously shared this data on Twitter, and he needs to be credit for it, because it was a remarkable algorithm that he developed in order to track the appearances of those who are in the Supreme Court. And what he found was only eight of the 48 barristers who've most frequently addressed the Supreme Court were women, and of the top, two, of the top 10, only two were. Now, this is where we need people to be visible and vocal and explaining why that is unacceptable and what the root of the problem are. And this is why I talk about my friend Karen. Karen Monaghan is a superb barrier carrier, someone who has, over the entirety of her career, been willing to say things that other people have shied away from and to communicate them. We have got to the stage, ladies and gentlemen, where it is not simply good enough to complain about what's going on in the legal profession within our bars and within private discussions. It needs to be a message that is out and it's heard. And as she says, the near absence of women's silks will be no surprise to anyone that's appeared there. Karen is one of the women that was featured as the most heavily rotated in the Supreme Court. Because the thing is, it begats, does it not, positive discrimination for those that are there. Because if you see the same men in the Supreme Court all the time, it's, oh, they were in, look down at their CV, they were there last, and so they get reinvested, they get reappointed, and it becomes a circle of reappointment and reaffirmation. And we have to see non-white men there in order to think we can be the people that are in those forums. We need to see non-white men and women there in the Supreme Court, not simply articulating for the argument they're advancing, but making the determination upon it. Because visibility, particularly when it's beamed nationwide across the country, inspires other people to think that this is an industry which is inclusive and not exclusive. And it powers dreams. It creates ambition because it has role models there that you can aspire to follow. And so if, when you have the Supreme Court proceedings beamed across the nation, being gripped, as we all were, I think, at the point when we were waiting for the decision on the government's prolegation of Parliament to be beamed down, just think what impact it had 
not just to the United Kingdom, but to the rest of the, the world from which the images were being drowned, to see the lead judgment being given by Brenda Hale. She was delivering her judgment with, with eloquence, with restraint, with majesty, with absolute command of the material at her disposal and command of the court. What better role model is there for someone than to see someone who is not of the elitist pool of um, Supreme Court uh, judges to be there in that position of influence and power? And that is why visibility matters, and that is why Karen was absolutely right to call it out. Because if it's not happening organically within our industry, it needs to happen both within and through pressure from outside. So what did Brenda Howe have to say about this? Well, she was at the bar conference this last weekend, and she and her colleagues have recalculated the stats, because up until Brenda's talk at the weekend, we were operating on Lord Sumpton's checks, I think from 2015, which suggested that um, it would not be in his lifetime, possibly not in mine, that we would get parity of gender representation in the most senior courts. But um, she and her colleagues are real calculated and effectively saying that once you took tribunal appointments out of the equation, it would be 14 years before there was gender parity in terms of representation. Now, I've not looked at her stats because it was a speech, not analysis. But even if you take the tribunal posts out, what does that say about the clustering of women still at the lower levels of the judiciary in terms of DJs, that means district judges, deputy district judges and county court level. Because if that doesn't change as well, then they are still largely invisible and we need them to be in positions of power and influence. And this is just an emblem of why it is important to be visible. Because it is no coincidence, is it, ladies and gentlemen, that since Brenda Hale was seen on that massive international stage handing down that judgment, a spider has acquired its own emoji. I mean, what power does that show? If you look at Twitter, there are scores of people now that have that next to their name because it's a symbol of empowerment. And if that can happen with just one televised judgment being handed down, think what could happen if there were more people prepared to be visible and vocal. And the reason Brenda Hale is so phenomenal is because despite being the most senior judge in the whole of our United Kingdom. That does not stop her leaving the Supreme Court, going to every single school, every single meeting she can do, every single gathering of students, every single university she's invited to. I mean, the woman is on some type of dynamo rush. I don't know how she does it. But she is prepared to engage and talk. Why is it we don't get more male judges doing that? This is not a province of women. It is entirely acceptable, it is entirely appropriate, it is entirely needed for strong men to support women being stronger. That's why Eduardo's here, because he is one of the people who, through his work through the Law Society Gazette and through the work he's done with 100 Years, who has been a champion for strong women. Kieran Pender has done the same thing. It was he who was behind the driving force behind the IBA report on sexual abuse and harassment that was published earlier this year. And he has been going from country to country to make sure the message is delivered because it was an international survey. I don't feel disempowered because someone is out there raising the flag for me. As the phrase is, we should all be feminists. 
So I don't think it's simply something that we should expect senior women to do. It's something we should expect all senior people in the profession to do. So if it's not happening organically, do we need to enforce change? What about quotas? Now, if I were to say this in a gathering of judges, there would be an immediate kickback because quotas, if I summarise it, mean that there will be a fear that you'll be appointed because you are black or because you're female as opposed to the fact that you are bright and able. And thereby, we would diminish the currency of the appointment that is being made. And, as Brenda says, it would mean the person who got the post would think they got it because of their gender or their race or their disability, as opposed to their skill base. And I can see all those arguments, and I was very anti-quota beforehand. But what are the arguments in favour? It's a way of making change when change isn't happening fast enough. Why should we assume that because, for example, you're appointed as a woman and you look at their CV, you're any less able to do the job than the man with the same CV? Why do we assume that a quota appointment means that people of less ability will be appointed? Why don't we assume, for example, it's a positive invitation to apply and be appointed? So whereas I was very strongly against quotas, having undertaken the work for this lecture, I am now far more ambivalent. And a friend and colleague of mine, Leslie Thomas, says it far more eloquently than I can. Equal opportunity is a very loaded concept and makes the assumption that everyone is starting from an equal position. However, it's well known that the BAME community, that we're not starting from an equal position. Therefore, if you have a system abiding by the principles of equal opportunity, you're actually perpetrating a process whereby people of colour are being disadvantaged and discriminated against. Now, I think that's a pretty powerful argument. And I do think it's about time it's engaged with. Because the alternative is about positive support, which is what Brenda Howell was saying um, when she was interviewed. I think this was in uh, the student magazine, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Because what she suggested was instead of quotas, with the disadvantage I've already identified in advance, what we should have is affirmative action, so effectively a positive system of encouragement. And that would be all very well and good if we still had equality when it came to those that were actually in the system. Now, the next slide comes slightly out of place, but it's an absolute corker, so I'm going to deal with it anyway, because it came into my newsfeed this morning. Lady Justice Gloucester. Now, this is a woman I'd really want to have at a party. Any woman that in an interview says that she went to her pupillage interview wearing thigh-hide white patent boots has rocking my boat any time, may I say. She, this account came out in a uh, lecture she gave um, where she talked about how long it had taken her to get her pupillage, how long it had taken her to get her tenancy and where she was talking about how long it had taken to get to the top, but get to the top indeed she did. Because, as we can see here, she, after establishing a practice in the commercial and chancery world, which is one of the more invisible uh, professions to Bain candidates and women, rose to the top by taking Silk Age 39, which is phenomenal, becoming the 40th woman QC, um, 
she took up the appointment as a High Court judge, becoming the first woman to be appointed judge in the Commercial Court, and then the first woman to lead the Commercial Court. And her career progression continued. But the reason she resigned and didn't retire was that she wanted to be in the Supreme Court. And she was rejected on the basis that she wouldn't have enough years left to sit. What are we doing, seriously, if someone as strikingly able as that, who has demonstrated the skills that they have to rise to the top, not only of their profession at the bar, but then at the top of the profession sitting as a member of the judiciary, is denied a place in the Supreme Court, ostensibly on the basis she can't pack enough years in. So if that's the system that's operating, I come back to quotas again. And it also makes me look at the suggestion that we empower change through encouragement in a slightly different light when I remind myself with a degree of irony that whereas we are here in the 100 years celebration, quite properly celebrating the achievements of the likes of Baroness Butler Sloss and Lady Justice Black, that I read both of them through the amazing Dana Smith, Denise Smith interviews, saying that they were actually only ever put on that path because the then Lord Chancellor for each of them tapped them on the shoulder and told them to apply on the basis that when they applied, they get it. So how comfortable does that make me feel as a woman that absent the Lord Chancellor tipping me on the shoulder and saying apply a system that's now no longer effective? How confident does that make me feel that but for that system of male patronage, I would be able to stand here celebrating their achievements? And if that's what encouragement means, then I think I might want something a little bit more. Now, what is happening is that the judiciary are taking this seriously. They have set up a judicial diversity committee which, first of all, monitors and evaluates progress at the levels of the judiciary. They've set up a judicial role modelling scheme whereby they send people out into the community, they send senior judges out into the community to talk about what being a judge means. And in fact, this morning, I read that Andrew McFarlane, who's the president of our family division, had gone to, I think it was an academy, don't know which one, forgive me, but was certainly talking to students this morning about what it's like to be a judge. So people like Andrew McFarling are doing what needs to be done. More people need to do it, but that is an initiative that is now uh, being undertaken. So there's also a pre-application judici judicial education pro program, which means that there is active efforts to reach out to, to qualified lawyers who aren't barristers to see if they would be interested in following a judicial path, which means that, for example, they look at the CPS, they look at the tribunal system. So when I'm saying things need to change, I must be clear that things are changing. It's the speed of the change that is something that troubles me. Because I've got to the stage where I want to see it happen, I just don't want it being planned for. So things are changing, and those of you that are younger in the room will, I am sure, benefit from that. But we need to make changes now, so what can we do? Now, this has got the title about being female at the bar, but ignore that, because this is about anyone that doesn't come from the traditional backgrounds. The first thing is be ambitious. We are too ready to doubt ourselves in terms of our intellectual ability and whether we're actually as good enough, because we tend to suffer more from imposter syndrome than others. How many of you at the bar know that there is a programme of scholarships um, under the title um, The Keeble Project, 
which if you have simply got three years plus call, and for example you work in the legal aid sector, you can apply for one of the 25 scholarships. Each inn offers five scholarships and the CBA offers um, five extra. So 25 scholarships to go to this project where over the course of a week it's the most intensive, um, uplifting, uh, empowering, challenging, intense programme of career investment you can embrace, you can embark upon. So why is it that despite the fact there are 25 free spaces for any of us that operate in the field of legal aid, only 15 are taken up? When I spoke to my uh, colleague um, who uh, runs the system, she was staggered that despite extensive advertising every year, they've never managed to fill more than about 15. And that comes from Sally Clark, you see. So if you are three years plus cool, then you must apply. And you don't have to be a member of the South Eastern Circuit to do so because they expressly admit anyone as long as they are prepared to join up. So even if you're a member of another circuit, that doesn't exclude your ability. So you have to be ambitious. The other thing is you need to be mentored. And being mentored means that you can expect, I think, entirely properly to be allocated someone who's not doing it just out of a sense of diligent duty, but who is passionate about why they should be a mentor and a mentee, and who understands that they, if they are a mentor, get as much out of the programme as the mentee does. Because being mentored means that you get to see us warts and all. It stops it becoming the other people who are silks, and it becomes someone who can be a silk. It means it's not simply being there with the judge who makes decisions about you and your family. You can be the judge that makes decisions about someone else's family, and you'll do it knowing how intimately important the decision you make is when you come from that same community. Being a mentee means that we break down barriers of miscommunication and distance that means that you can take leaps and strides into your career that are yours and should be yours, because frankly it's gone on for the white elite members of the profession for decades. So I think there is a moral obligation for those of us that are senior at the bar to be mentored, and I don't think it should be something that we apply to do. I think it should be expected of us, but there we are. Be role models, leading by example. And that means that our responsibility is to raise awareness, it's to send the message out. You can be a role model by being superb at your job, obviously. But I think being good at your job should be taken as a basic tick box exercise for those of us that have become senior. It's being prepared to do more. It's being prepared to break out of your chambers or your profession or your group of friends that you've grown up with over the years that have supported you. And to do what I say in each of these lectures, it's to be prepared to lean down to pull other people up the ladder rather than knocking the runs away, or by pretending they're not there, because having climbed them somehow, the struggle seems invisible. And as I've said before, men should not be excluded from this debate, which is why the Law Society have led the way with a toolkit, which effectively gives very simple things for men in positions of influence to follow, for example, if they're heads of chambers, or the senior clerk to do if they are serious about making changes. What else can we do? The Me Too movement, which kicked off, and some of us were part of a movement I was invited to speak at the launch of called Behind the Gown. Last year I gave a talk about sexual harassment at the bar, 
and I wasn't able to say then what I knew the Bar Council and the special agencies were trying to build up behind, which is a way of breaking down that fear of reporting, which made you think that your career may somehow be impacted on by complaining about abusive behaviour. And so the Spot app, which was launched, is a remarkable device because it enables you to report behaviour which is inappropriate, either if you're the victim of it or you're witness of it, and you remain in charge of that information because effectively you're logging an event. You don't have to report it to take it to the stage unless you want to. And in particular, it means that if you don't feel comfortable in so doing, but the Spot app gathers data that one particular person has a pattern of behaviour, which means you're not the only person. There is a way through this app purely anonymously to let you know you're not the only one. And therefore, it makes you feel, I would hope, empowered to make a decision about to make a choice to complain if you know it's not just you, it wasn't your fault, it's not a one-off. The Spot app is a superb thing to be introduced and I applaud the Bar Council and those uh, who have created it in so doing. So why is it needed? Because I seriously thought that come November 2019, when the spotlight has been on abusive behaviours now for so many years, and in particular over the last year, that I would not be reading this case out to you. But I am going to, because its words speak far louder than mine about what abusive practices are still occurring at the bar. We are talking about Richard Ian Miles, who in October 2009 was suspended by five a five-member disciplinary tribunal for 10 months after making gross misogynistic comments in a private group. Now, if I talk about misogynistic contents or uh, behaviours, you might think it's the equivalent of walking along the street and a builder starts whistling at you and when you don't turn around, you know, you're called any number of names because for some reason you're not flattered by their attention. We're not talking about that. These are the comments that... Richard Ian Miles posted on this chat line. Targeted to one woman. As an 18-year-old, I love to stick my head behind, between a girl's boobs, shake it about and go blah, blah, blah. They were always impressed. I wonder if he knows Boris Johnson. As an adult, I'd now go the whole way and fully chander down her cleavage if I got the opportunity. If we can't at least find some other saggy front bottom to abuse, can we at least speculate where the evil prolapsed whore might charge for extras? She's clearly got A-levels, maybe not recognised by any exam board, and she'd only charge an extra of 54p for that but spit-roasted, three ways by some 1920s Bolsheviks, I reckon she'd pay. Anyone feeling a bit Trotsky would have her crying out in origami. Oh, it doesn't really matter as long as she's crying. You ready for the next one? You really wouldn't think it was going to get worse, would you? A couple of thoughts for the next fielder we're bash. Could we rent a stunt dwarf and have a competition for the most imaginative catapult? Well, how about this? This is a threat to kill. A wicker man competition for nine-fingered witch burning. Obviously, we only get to do that once, so it would be mainly based on stylistic merit. Winner gets to incinerate her at the end of the evening. 
We could all wear Maggie Thatcher spitting image style masks and sing the landlord's daughter as she goes up. Lana Perry gets a Brit Eklund role. Richard Ian Miles has no place in our profession. I am staggered and cannot understand how the consequence of that behaviour was a 10-month suspension as opposed to disbarment. That's why we need change. So, how do we address some of these factors? I'm going to speed up slightly now because I want to get to celebrate the people that are in this audience that deserve to have recognition by virtue of all the things I have said in the preceding 30 minutes. We need to tackle the reasons why women leave the bar upon parenthood and don't return. And it's not difficult to remedy that. The reason I say it's not difficult is that when the right brains with the right imagination get thinking about what to do, they come up in the form of Kate Brunner, QC, who is a guiding light behind the Western Circuit Women's Forum, and she and her colleague come up with a very simple, very effective practical guide as to what to do, how to plan for maternity leave or paternity leave, how to plan for your exit from the bar for the period you're caring, how to plan for your return, and then a review thereafter. It doesn't take that long to make a difference. But when there is a difference there, that type of programme needs to be embraced and endorsed, and it should be obligatory on chambers, I think, to adopt it, with reasons being identified for why they're not following it, as opposed to finding reasons for why they should. But as I've been keen to emphasise, the talk I'm giving is not simply about gender and the lack of diversity at the bar. It's embracing the constellation of factors that means that if you are white, if you're non-black, if you are female, if your sexuality is not straight, then we need to understand why it is that that's not a visible message being sent out that we are an inclusive and not an exclusive profession because diversity is not about gender. What do we do? Well, if you're not straight and at the bar, you need to confront the research data that was provided by Mason and Vaughan through the ICL project they produced in 2017 where there was 126 research survey respondents where over just uh, half of them had experienced some form of discrimination at work or in their profession on account of their sexuality. The report found that this suggests that homophobia is stronger at the bar than in the general population because research from Stonewall shows overall that 90% of LGBTQ employees had experienced verbal bullying. So think back to those stats I gave at the beginning. If the bar has, on the declared results, a greater percentage of non-straight people practising in it, why is it so few of them are prepared to say that they aren't straight when it comes down, for example, to um, experiencing this behaviour and being prepared to report it? So what can we do? Well, we need to lead the way. The inns have got a role in making sure that if you're not straight, you've got a safe place to be and a powerful place to be. It means that discrimination in chambers through unconscious bias needs to be called out and addressed. And as Ruggy uh, Kotak says, further explored in my lecture notes, we need to be careful that we are not tearing upon a minefield of microaggressions. And we look, need to look at the effect of mobility on the profession. And things can be done and are being done. There are some really encouraging, supportive groups that are there in order to make sure that those who aren't straight feel supported and empowered. And I say that 
with some trepidation because I am straight and I am really trying to be respectful in this lecture by not, not assuming a right to talk about things that is not my history to own, by not appropriating someone else's experiences because I don't know what it's like to be judged because I, I'm gay. I don't know what it's like to be judged because I don't have a name that someone can pronounce on a form. I don't know what it's like to be judged when I walk through the door because I don't have a white skin. And so when I mention disability and when I mention discrimination through sexuality or, or gender determination or through the colour of your skin, I do so with humility and some trepidation because it's not my experience to own. But the reason I'm doing it, in case it needs explaining, is because in the same way that I think it's a responsibility of strong, men, women, strong men to support women at the bar, I think it's a responsibility of strong women to support other people who suffer discrimination at the bar, even if they don't suffer from those same characteristics. But if in the course of this lecture, either in what I've said or the notes or what I'm about to say, I inadvertently trespass upon matters which are not mine to have the authority to speak upon, it's done with the best of intentions. Because I don't think I can talk about gender discrimination without acknowledging that gender does not divide between the colour of your skin or your sexuality. And therefore, I cannot simply talk about being a white female who's been the victim of harassment or discrimination because that would be a bizarre way to think of our extraordinarily multi-talented intersectional population. So with that caveat, I'm going to move on to someone that does know what he's talking about, which is um, Leslie, who is effectively talking about what it's like to be judged by virtue of what you look like before you've opened your mouth, being thought of as a defendant instead of the barrister or the solicitor instead of the barrister. And it talks about examples such as Brigitte, who sits here, has had very recently, going for her BTPC um, interview for a scholarship. And she comes from a remarkable background, has packed more into her 27 years than I have done into my 56. So why is it that when she goes for a scholarship, claiming with pride, as she is able to do, her heritage, her history, of being a Roma who has moved from country to come here with picking up more qualifications, and again, I could even understand the titles of, let alone think to acquire, that she has asked in an interview why, since by virtue of her background, why is she here in the United Kingdom practicing or seeking to practice? Why is she needed here when with her skill base she could go back to Hungary? Why is it acceptable, ladies and gentlemen, for someone junior in our profession aspiring to join it to have such clumsy questioning, even if it wasn't intended to be discriminatory? Think of the impact that that type of question has upon someone that's already in a position of inferiority compared to superiority when it comes to handing out funds. For so long as that type of casual comment is made, we have not properly got the people in charge to make a difference when they can do so at the earlier stages of their profession, which is why Les is quite right. We need to make sure that language is inappropriate, which is called out and not tolerated and not excused. So, organisations matter. Joining groups that understand what you're going through matter. Programmes like this, to be a social mobility advocate matters. I am the bar. 
It matters because we need people to articulate the problems at the bar and to inspire other people to join them. Because they will be the ones that drive our careers forward. These people are only ones I've picked up, like I three, through the remarkable Twitter feed and power of the internet. They are just illustrations about how you don't have to have gone to Oxbridge, how you don't have to have a first-class degree, how you don't have to look in a certain way, you don't have to talk in a certain way, because, in fact, it's your brain that matters and your application and your dedication. That is the future of the bar, not the person that interviewed Brigitte. What else matters? If we are intending to make a difference, we have to have voices that matter. We have to be visible and we have to be prepared to be articulate. We're articulate for our clients. Why aren't we articulate for our profession? And if we believe that the guiding principles of law are justice, fairness and equality, and if we believe in them, then I don't think that should be a matter of simply words because words without action are simply flitter away as good deeds turn into old papers. And so that's why people like these matter. That's why Cartoon's up there. Because when Cartoon was one of the first women of colour to go to the bench, she did so after a professional lifetime of activism. And she did not expect that when she got there, there will be so few people to follow her. That's why being visible and vocal matters. Because we need people like Cartoon, who were celebrated last night at the worldwide premiere at the 100 Years Project for what she has celebrated. It's why we need the likes of Shona Jolly, the woman and her Anna on Twitter. It's why we need the likes of Brie, who's done so much work on matters to do with gender determination. It's why we need the likes of Karen Monaghan. It's why we need the likes of Keelan. It's why we need Sam King. It's why we need Philip Marshall. It's why we need Kate Brunner. It's why we need Amal Clooney. It's why we need Kirsty. It's why we need Judy, Kieran. It's why we need Andrew Powell. It's why we need people to do more than simply good, being good at their job. We need them to be articulate representatives of our community who inspire change, demand action, and deliver effective um, action in their own needs. That is what we need to happen. Because... Letting others take the strain of the campaign for equality and diversity just isn't good enough. Every single member of the bar and the judiciary has a responsibility to lead the way. It's not just good enough to say you agree. You've got to show you agree. I am not interested anymore in words without action because there is not enough time left to effect change. So the message of this lecture is that every one of you who aspires to be a member of our profession should have no hesitation in seeking those of us in senior positions out. And those of who's reached some position of seniority should have a duty and a moral imperative to make sure that we make what we do visible and accessible to you, because that is what the future of the bar will thrive upon. Thank you very much. <laughs>